Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together. Good morning, Tim and Dale and Keith, and the rest of you who are with us uh, this morning or afternoon, as it may be for some of you. So we're continuing Isaiah. We are getting close. We will probably wrap up this book this week. It's been a long one. We've been at this for quite a while, and uh, I already know where we're going to go next, but you're going to have to wait till later in the week to find out about that. So we're in some interesting, uh, interesting places here. Uh, good morning, Steve. Glad that you are with us. Um, so I, I mentioned this, I think it was early last week, and in anticipation of where we would get to here in chapter 65, 66 of Isaiah, something's got to give in our understanding, in our interpretation. And I want to challenge you, try to set aside your assumptions of what you think you know. I'm doing that and I'm, uh, this is hard. I, some, some things that, uh, that I have held so dearly for a long time are at least being challenged. Uh, I wouldn't say I've given them up yet, but as we read and study these things in their context here in Isaiah, it, uh, I don't know, it gives me pause to say, do I really understand this correctly? Is it, could there be something I'm missing? Could I misunderstand the New Testament as it quotes and comments on and interprets these passages? So with all that, let's take a look. But I just, I want to encourage you to be, um, Dale says, finish this week. Is this an Amil spiritual week? Daniel week? <laughs> no, I, I think uh, I think we're going to wrap it up this week on Isaiah. We'll see. We'll see if you're a, a prophet of sorts there. All right, so let's, uh, let's get into it. So just to backtrack a little bit, a few verses to what we saw last week here. Isaiah 65, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster... And one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it, or blessing in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. So if you recall, this is the, the, the context of God bringing judgment on his people. Uh, there's plenty in all of Isaiah that describes the whole world. But a lot of it, maybe most of it, focuses on the Jews. And that's the case here. And God has judged them. He has declared and exposed their idolatry, their wickedness. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to pour out my wrath on my people. This was all written a hundred years prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 586. But again, if you've with if you've been with us, you've seen that there's a there are allusions and statements of a destruction of Jerusalem and a a judgment that comes after 586. So as God is laying out this uh, the destruction here, He says, just like there's new wine and don't destroy it, I'm not going to destroy all of the folks, all of the people in my city because of my servants. I won't do that. So there's a remnant. There are some who will not be destroyed. He goes on, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob. Jacob will have a seed 
is literally what the Hebrew here says, Zerah. And an heir of my mountains from Judah. So Jacob, being the, the father of the nation of Israel, in terms of namesake, Judah, uh, one of the tribes that sort of becomes the, uh, the namesake as well. Judah's going to have an heir, someone who's going to inherit his mountains, the Lord's mountains. Even my chosen ones, God's chosen ones, shall inherit it, the, uh, the city, the, the Zion. And my servants will dwell there. So we've seen all this, just recapping. Goes on with more blessing. Sharon, another term describing uh, the land of Israel there, will be a pasture land for flocks in the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. So God's people will seek him, but the rest, you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and remember we talked about this as a, a, an idol, a, a pagan god, and so is destiny. So you set a table for fortune, you fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, another pagan god, I will destine you for the sword. See the play on words there? You mix wine for destiny, well I will destine you for the sword. And all of you will bow down to the slaughter. You've been bowing down before fortune and these false gods. Well, you're going to bow down to the sword that's going to kill you. Because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I do not delight. Therefore, and remember we saw this, all these contrasts between those enemies of God, of Israel, the Jews in Jerusalem, those enemies who are idol worshipers, and God's slaves. That's the distinction through here. Thus says Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants will rejoice. You will be put to shame. My servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart. You will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones. In other words, God's chosen ones here will look back at those who are destroyed and say they were cursed. God cursed them. That should call to mind the blessing and the cursings of the old covenant. Where God said, if you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. I will destroy you. I'll bring another nation down and they will wipe you out. That echoes in the background here. God's going to bring about his covenant curse upon these idolater wicked people. The Lord God will slay you. Now, he will use foreign powers to do it, but he's the one ultimately acting to, to kill these people. But my servants will be called by another name. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. He who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are gone and because they are hidden from my sight. Now, I just said there's an allusion here to the covenant. There's another allusion here as well. Do you remember? What have we seen already in the Old Testament? Not in Isaiah, but what do you know from the Old Testament that would talk about name, curse, chosen one, servant, Another name or a new name 
being blessed in the earth. I, I realize I'm not giving you much to go on. <laughs> think, think about uh, this statement here. My servants will be called by another name. I don't know how to, I'm trying to be Socrates here. I don't know how to lead you into this without uh, just giving it away. So I'll just give it away. Think about Abraham. Abraham was given a new name, right? As was Jacob. Abram was the great patriarch's first name, and God changed it to Abraham, which is different. Jacob's name was, of course, uh, transferred to Israel. Abraham was given this new name, and it was said that all who bless him will be blessed, all who curse him will be cursed. And then he received the great blessing and God swore an oath. All of this verbal illusion, I think somehow is tying back to Abraham. Uh, Just like Abraham was given a new name, my servants will be called by another name. Another name from what? Well, another name from Israel, from the Jews maybe. Uh, his God's chosen ones, his elect, will see that the old, the, 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 the people who are idolaters here from Israel, they're going to be, uh, their name's going to be a curse. They're going to say, yep, they deserved what they got because of their wickedness. And God did exactly what he said. Uh, this phrasing here in the Hebrew is very interesting. It's uh, he who blesses himself. It's a reflective word, reflective verb. Uh, he who blesses himself in the earth will be uh, the one who blesses himself by the God of truth. There is some verbal allusion there to Abraham as well. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. So the God's chosen ones, his people, are going to bless themselves. Not not that they're actually causing the blessing, but they are accepting, they're, they're receiving for themselves the blessing of the God of truth. And they're swearing by the God of truth. In other words, their loyalty is to the one true God. And then he says this, the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight, God says. God is is going to forget these former troubles that he's bringing upon the Jews, the destruction, the punishment, the slaying of them. They are hidden from his sight. He's done with that. And I'm stressing that because of the next verse. He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. What are the former things? The former troubles he just mentioned, the destruction of Jerusalem and the slaying of his wicked people. Why would I stress that? Why would I stress here that the former things are the former curse and destruction of God's people? Because when we read this, I be I create a new heavens and a new earth, we immediately think cosmology. We think the earth that, that we are living on now and the heavens, the sky that we go outside and we look up and we see the, the, the clouds and the blue and the sun and uh, at nighttime see the stars and planets, we, we think this means God's going to destroy all of that and make a new 
skyline, heavenly realm with moon and stars and so on. And he's going to take the earth that we live on now and make it new. Destroy the old and make the new. The question is, why do we think that? Now, I know some of you are going to jump right to the New Testament. Oh, that, and that's fair. If you know me well enough, you know I absolutely affirm that the New Testament has interpretive priority over the Old Testament. We, we interpret everything in the Old through the lens of the New. So I, I, I affirm that. But at least let's ask the question, what would the hearers of Isaiah have understood this to mean? And let's, let's try to understand what's here before jumping to the New Testament. And I think the case is persuasive that the former things here are the same former troubles, which are the sins of the Jews that are judged by God. If that's true, because you see that the, the, the language is parallel. Former troubles are forgotten. They are hidden from my sight. Former things will not be remembered or come to mind. That's parallel. The, how are they hidden from God? Well, he's not going to remember them. He's not going to remember them against anybody in the future, in the, against the Jews in the future. Why? Because he's creating a new heavens and new earth. Now, we've already seen in, in Isaiah, if you, I don't know if I persuaded you, uh, but if I persuaded you back in Isaiah 13, for instance, when God said he's going to judge Babylon, he uses these cosmological perturbations, these, these things in the heavens, the sun no longer shining and the stars falling and that kind of stuff, earthquakes, that I'm not exactly quoting there, but it's that kind of stuff to describe the fall of Jerusalem at the hand of, uh, no, it's not bad. It's the fall of Babylon, not the fall of Jerusalem there. So we've already seen him use heavenly language to describe something that was not actually the sun failing to shine. Is it possible that the new heavens and new earth here is metaphorical rather than cosmological? Uh, Lon says a do-over versus literal. Uh, do you mean a, a do-over Lon, follow up with that. Are you what, what are you asking about there? The uh, the new heavens and new earth or something else? Uh, Dale says, what are your thoughts on the implications of the idea that God revealed as a mystery? It was intentionally less clear. So how much weight should we put on the original reading? Yeah, and that's a, that's a very fair question. And again, if you've followed me long enough, you know I give a lot of weight to that. Um, I'm also always trying to just challenge my own assumptions and make sure that I'm letting the text, the Old and the New Testament, say what it says rather than forming a conclusion and then forcing a text into my presuppositions no matter where it's coming from in the scripture. So, yes, great point. Um, I'm just trying to ask questions and challenge my own assumptions and yours as, as well. Uh, Jay says, firmament, it shall not be moved. Um so are you arguing with that statement that uh, you think the present heavens and earth 
are going to remain forever, that kind of thing. All right, so let me let me carry this question a little uh, further. Alon says, follow up new heaven, earth to give another chance, forgetting what lies behind, looking forward. Um, so is that a do-over or literal? Yeah, uh, that's part of the question I'm trying to ask here. All right, so coming back to the text, God says, again, this word for is very important. If you read the NIV, which I would discourage, they leave out these words all the time. But for the former things, the former troubles are forgotten. They're hidden from his sight. Why? Because I create a new heavens, new earth. So we've got to figure out what's the causal connection. How does this give the explanation for why? Hang on now. Go on with me here. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Repetition of the word create. I'm creating a new heavens, a new earth. Rejoice in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Now, most of the people following me are not dispensational, I think. I think that's true. Um, so dispensationalists would hold to that, that there's a, a, a future city, Jerusalem, that's going to be rebuilt the temple is going to be rebuilt and the kingdom of the Messiah is going to uh, take up residence there again as Jesus comes back and reigns from Jerusalem. And there may be some other, other groups that hold that as well. The question I'm asking here is, is this Jerusalem literal? So he says, I'm creating a new heavens and new earth. Would you also say he's creating a Jerusalem meaning a literal city. If he's not creating a literal city for rejoicing, if this Jerusalem is the church in some form, even the eschatological church, even if you're thinking of Revelation where it says, I saw the, I beheld the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and if you're persuaded that is the people of God, not an actual city, which if you look at the imagery there, I don't think it can be a city because uh, it describes the height of a city and, and other things that just, I don't, I don't see how that could be literal. So if this Jerusalem that's being created here is metaphorical, even a metaphor for the church, then on what basis do we argue for a literal new heavens and new earth in the same context. Again, I'm I'm not really I'm not trying to persuade you of anything here. I'm telling I'm telling you the questions I'm wrestling with here, trying to figure this out. What justification do I have? Because I read the New Testament and Second Peter three, Revelation seems like new heavens and new earth. Whether it's replenish, do over, uh, regardless of of sort of how it is, it seems at first glance to be heaven and earth, right? So we can debate about if it's a, a, a complete destruction and brand new, or if it's a refinement, that, that debate goes on. And that's a, a worthy debate. But I'm asking a question back before that. In this text, how do I, if I'm going to take a new heavens and new earth, literally, why would I not also take a new 
Jerusalem, a new city, an actual city, literally, since I don't have good warrant in the text here to say one is literal and one is metaphorical. Peter says, do you think that, uh, looks like it says Gad, do you mean God? Do you think that God, or do I not, maybe I can't see it well. <laughs> I apologize if I, let me put it up here. Oh yeah, you said Gad, but I, I'm assuming you mean God. Do you think that God will keep creation in a state of corruption for eternity? Uh, I don't. I don't. Um, and I think I know why you're asking that. Uh, Jay says, replenish is do-over. Okay. Lon says, Jerusalem rejoicing over the cross. New earth equal a whole new approach. Maybe. Maybe uh, that would fit well with much of the other that we have seen, I think. Um Let me just throw one more passage. Ah, this is why Dale was, <laughs> was skeptical about being able to get done this week. Uh, no, I'm going to stick to the text. I'm going to stick here. We'll come back to, to other things here in a minute. <laughs> so let me go on. Just, you, uh, you know, the, the questions I'm asking, you're following here. He goes, he says, I will. So this is God now speaking. I create a new Jerusalem. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem. And be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Uh, so God says, I'm creating Jerusalem for rejoicing. And he says, I'm going to rejoice in Jerusalem, and I'm going to be glad in my people. And my people won't weep or cry. That sounds like revelation, right? And what we think of as... Uh, as there's no death, no no mourning, no troubles, all of that, which we think of as the next age, whatever you call it, the next age, the eternal state, the glorified state, uh, as Peter used there for eternity. That's what we think of. Here's the problem with seeing this as pointing toward some sort of eternal glorified state where there's no death and so on. Verse 20, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days for the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be cursed. The NAS puts here thought, but that's not thought. He says will be cursed, which there are two things that are, that are hard here in this verse. He says the one who does not reach 100 will be accursed and youth will die. So if this context is talking about the eternal state, the glorified state, the next age, the new heavens, new earth in our traditional thinking, here we have people dying. And that's what I said earlier. It seems like something has to give. Either... The new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem are, are metaphorical or death is metaphorical. You see that? If this new heavens and new earth is what we think of as the eternal state, so there's literally a new heavens, a new earth, new Jerusalem, 
then it seems like this uh, statement about the youth dying at the age of 100, meaning the, the youngest one who dies will be 100, then God is saying, metaphorically, they will not die. No one will die. And the metaphor he's using for saying no one will die is the youth will die at 100 years old. Are you, are you tracking with me? Our thinking, our belief in the new heavens and new earth, based on the New Testament, is that there's no death there. Right? There's no mourning, no weeping, no death. If that's true, then when God says the youth will die at 100 and the one who doesn't reach the age of 100 will be accursed, he is saying there will be no death with the metaphor of someone dying and not reaching 100 years old. I'll just tell you at first reading here, I don't see how death illustrates not dying. That's just really hard for me. I can see how new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem can be metaphorical because of all the other times Isaiah has used these cosmic terms to describe something uh, metaphorical. Lon says, I vote metaphorical. Eternal life is not 100. So which are you voting for? Are you voting for the new heavens and new earth to be metaphorical? Is that... Uh, I think that would be the implication of what you're saying. Uh, this is hard. This is hard. And he goes on with some more hard things. <laughs> and, and as Dale pointed out, this is not the final word. And we have to let the New Testament and the coming and fulfillment in Christ, we have to let that have interpretive priority. So, don't hear what I'm not saying, and, and I haven't drawn conclusions here. And I'm also wondering, is there a way, is there something that that is transformed with the coming of Christ? I don't I I'm just thinking out loud here. I mean, I'm, man, I should stop talking because uh, I'm, I'm not even sure what I'm trying to say here. I'm just trying to point out the difficulties that I see in the text and then see if that opens the door for some uh, some readings of us, some other things to uh, to clear it up. So... We're going to leave it there for the day. Uh, give that some thought. Read ahead. The next few verses are also difficult and have some challenges. And uh, we're going to continue to work through this this week and see if we can come to any conclusions. Appreciate your comments and feel free to put comments on the video uh, after the video if you have other thoughts along the way. And, uh, and we will see if we can come to some understanding of this. It's exciting, difficult. We want to be humble and uh, see what's here. Have a great day. We'll see you, Lord willing, tomorrow.